Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 17th mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures. They either have pretty straightforward causes, or they happened a really long time ago, and there's usually just not enough information available for a full episode. So we do have a long list of failures that we want to tell you about, and these mini failures give us a great opportunity to talk about the simpler ones that just don't make for a full episode. Yes, we have a very long list, a list that continues to grow, and we love it that way. We don't want that to change at all. Keep sending us your ideas. Also, these episodes are just the failure, no news, and no ads, for now at least. It's like failureology light. This week's mini failure is about the Minnesota Metrodome. Where's the Metrodome located, Nicole? In Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a lot of M words in this one. That is a lot of M words. The Metrodome opened April 3rd, 1982, and was closed on December 29th, 2013. So it had a much longer life than the dome failure that we looked at in the last episode with the Seattle Kingdom. Metrodome cost 55 million US dollars at the time to build, or 196 million in today's dollars. The main tenants of the dome were the Minnesota Vikings of the NFL, the Minnesota Twins of Major League Baseball, and the Minnesota Golden Gophers of NCAA football and baseball. But it also hosed soccer and the Timberwolves of the NBA, its basketball team, for a season or two. Its seating capacity varied, like we saw in the Kingdom episode. 64,000 people for football, 46,000 people for baseball, 50,000 for basketball, and 60,000 people for concerts. And the stadium was designed to be a utilitarian design. It was designed to get fans in, let them see a game or a concert, let them go home. Which, I mean, sounds pretty ideal. What more do you want? Short bathroom lines and short concession lineups would be my only other requests. But yeah, I mean, that's really what you want in a stadium. Get everyone in, let them see the game, and let them get out as fast as possible. There's nothing worse than going to a game and then you leave and it's a three-hour process to get out because it's just so crowded. That's really annoying, honestly. Puts a whole damper on my evening. It really does. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I live within walking distance of the NHL venue that we have in downtown Calgary for the Flames. So my commute home walking is great. Um, by the time I get home, there's still backups of traffic and people that haven't gotten out of the parking lot. But as a life pro tip, I'm going to share this because I learned this 20 years ago on the restroom side of things or the concession side of things at an NHL game the first whistle that happens after the 6 10 or 14 minute mark of a period is when the TV timeout happens so it's a full two minute TV timeout so that is your opportunity if you know that the TV break is coming up to go to the bathroom or go grab snacks or beers or whatever you need to grab that that was one of the life-changing things that I learned in university there's also a light that they put on by the camera crew. If you don't know when it's going to happen, you can also look for the light. And when the light goes on, you know it's a TV timeout. It's a longer timeout. And you can run out then. I always go with the, the whistle after the 6, 10, and 14 minute mark. But either way, good information to know whether it's the whistle or whether it's the light. Some spots you can't see the light. You can always see the whistle or the play stops. And, and, you, and you know it's the time to escape. So a lot of the time I can get to the bathroom 
or the concession stand and back in my seat without missing any of the game. Because of the fabric domed roof, the Metrodome was one of the loudest venues to view a game and until its demolition it was the loudest domed NFL stadium. During the 1987 and 1991 World Series, the peak decibel levels were measured at 125 decibels and 118 decibels respectively. That is incredibly loud for a venue to have as a, as a sound level. So this level, just to compare it to something else, it would be equivalent to a police siren or a jet engine. And it's actually not that far off of the pain threshold uh, for sound, which is 140 decibels. So it was it was a loud stadium to see a game in. Um, great, I guess, if you're the home team. Um, probably not so great if you're if your team is losing. So like the Seattle Kingdom, this stadium too had roof issues. This one's a bit different. So it was a fabric domed roof, unlike the concrete roof that made up the Seattle Kingdom. And this building also had another different characteristic about it. It was a pressurized structure. It required 120 cubic meters per second of air to keep it inflated. And there were 20, 90 horsepower fans around the building that made this happen. I think this is really cool that they they used air to support a lot of the the roof covering it, it's a really neat way to have a building roof it's a really interesting concept and i think it's a cool concept but i think in practice it does have a lot of issues because it's challenging to maintain the structural integrity of the building relies on that air pressure and so getting in and out of the building is kind of tricky if there's any leaks they matter much more renovations make are more challenging because you have to keep it pressurized or it collapses yeah i think the concept is really cool but i think in practice it's it's a bit trickier to roll out and maybe that's just because we don't know enough about these structures i wouldn't say they're overly common they we do see them but they're not you know, they don't happen every day. And so maybe we just don't know enough information. But I mean, you're like one angry bird away from losing your roof in one of these venues. I don't, yeah, yeah. So the Metrodome had two roof layers. The outer layer was a Teflon coated fiberglass. It was made up of a 0.8 millimeter thick Teflon membrane and a 0.4 millimeter thick woven fiberglass layer, which honestly is impressively thin for what this roof was doing in my opinion i was expecting a much thicker membrane and then the inner membrane was a proprietary acoustic fabric the intent of the space between these two layers was to insulate the roof they even blew warm air in between the layers during the winter to help melt snow which i think is pretty creative the entire roof weighed 260,000 kilograms and spanned over 40,000 cubic meters and it reached 59 meters high or 16 stories at its highest point this sounds high, but as far as stadiums go, it was a pretty low ceiling. Major League Baseball even had specific rules for the Metrodome. Any ball that hit the roof or objects hanging from it were still in play, which made for some pretty unexpected ball trajectories. The roof color was also white, which made it really easy to lose balls if you didn't keep an eye on them. This honestly sounds like a really interesting stadium to play in. It sounds like there's a lot of different things that could different handicaps that exist within this stadium which i think is pretty cool yeah so there's still a, a dome stadium like this that exists in major league baseball um and it's where the tampa bay rays play i believe it's tropicana field and tropicana field as well uh also has some rules for what happens when the ball hits a catwalk um what happens you know whether it's in play or whether it's out of play 
And just like the Metrodome, Tropicana Field also has a white underlayer on the roof, so it makes it incredibly difficult for any outfielder or players or umpires or fans to even track where the ball is in the stadium. Interesting. Baseball is such a weird sport. In addition to using the space between the two roof layers to help them melt snow with hot air, the workers on the roof also use steam and hot water to help melt snow, and they had to keep the inside of the stadium at 26.7 degrees Celsius, which drastically prevented roof tears. So as we kind of talked about, the the membrane itself is very, very thin, and because it's spanning such a large space, it is really susceptible to tears. And of course, because this is a pressurized stadium, you know, a roof tear could send the whole thing down. It could it could cause the whole building to collapse. So they really do have to make sure that they maintain pressure in the building. And so tears, I think, were that much more potentially catastrophic and that much more critical to the structure. So the roof actually does collapse a number of times. It, in fact, it collapses four times in the 80s, mostly due to snow, all of them weather related. So the first collapse happens November 19th, 1981. There's 300 millimeters of snow on the roof and it causes it to collapse and the roof has to be reinflated. Then not to be outdone, the following year in 1982 on December the 30th, heavy snow causes a tear and the roof has to be reinflated. 1983, so the next year, less than six months later on April the 15th, a tear is caused by heavy snow and it deflates the roof again. And then on April 26, 1986, the roof suffers a tear from high winds, but it doesn't deflate. So they have a a number of issues going on with weather-related events that that impact this roof. And eventually, in April of 2010, the roof's manufacturer and installers perform an inspection and find that, quote, the outer membrane is in good condition and still holding up well, and the inner condition is quoted as fair to poor. So they note some minor areas on the outer area that need repairing, some holes in the inner area that should be monitored to prevent them from enlarging. And all in all, the roof was weathering as anticipated, and at this point it's exceeded its 20-year service life with a recommended replacement soon. So it sounds like things are going fairly well outside of these four issues that they've had related to weather. And so not surprisingly, operators decide that the roof's in very good shape, It had a high serviceable life, and they plan to test it in four years. Which is probably too far apart. You you got, at that point, like, I think once you've reached your service life capacity, I think, you know, annual testing at least is a good idea. Maybe biannual testing, like before it snows and then partway through the snowy part of the year, and then maybe again in the springs, maybe, yeah, two or three times once you exceeded your expected service life, it seems like a pretty good thing to do for, you know, due diligence. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting that always happens is so, and I get it, the replacement roof is expensive. And so they want to get as much life out of this roof as possible. But the thing that they don't seem to ever understand is that when the roof fails, it's more money than if they just replaced it. So if you can time it well, replacing the roof before it fails while still getting the maximum lifespan out of it, that's, you know, the best bang for your buck. And everyone tries to push the limit of the service life. And like, we just see this over and over again and stop doing that. Replace it. It's the service life is 20 years. You have fair to poor on the inner roof's condition. And 
you know that it it's not going to hold up that much longer. Replace it. Yeah, there's some fairly large gaps in the major league baseball season when the you know when the Twins are traveling. Like I, I feel you probably work around the the schedule that, that's out there, and you know at least make some you know repairs to the outer part, and then you know if the team's away for a couple of weeks, do some inner inner membrane repairs because when your roof collapses, you can't play any games, which means you have no revenue coming in, and it winds up costing you even more money. Exactly. And that's what winds up happening. There's a severe snowstorm on December the 10th and the 11th that drops 430 millimeters of snow across Minneapolis. 43 centimeters of snow. For our American friends that are listening, that's just under 18 inches of snow that happens in a very short period of time. Strong winds, hose malfunctioning, and hazardous conditions prevented workers from clearing the snow on the dome. Wouldn't that be an unfortunate job? Having to go up there in a snowstorm and clear the roof, I would not like that job. I mean, maybe they they get crazy carpets and toboggans or just like a giant blanket and like slide down and clear the snow. Is that an option or no? Because I would probably be in for that one. What catches you at the bottom? I would assume they have some sort of fence or a tether system or maybe like a giant, giant pillow that you go into. I don't think so. You really got to think that through. I don't, I would not. No, no way. Well, the dome, the dome doesn't exist. So that job probably doesn't exist. And I don't think Florida gets enough snow where it's a concern. So. True, true. So at 5 a.m. Central Time on December 12th, three of the roof's panels tore open and snow fell onto the field. So this is interesting and really cool. The camera crew from the Giants-Vikings game the night before noticed water leaking through the roof, and they left their cameras on. So they captured the footage of the roof collapse, and we're going to put a link in the show notes. That's pretty cool. I've watched I've watched it a bunch of times because I just think it's really interesting. So from what it looks like in the video, a tear opened a large section of the roof near the edge, which then deflated the roof. And as the snow started to shift and accumulate in lower segments, those segments gave way and dropped and a ton of snow fell onto the field. It's like if you're camping and you have a tarp set up over the picnic table when it rains. And then, uh, you know, if, if there's a hole in it or somebody slices part of the tarp open, all of the water comes in through that hole. The roof was ultimately replaced for a cost of $18 million, and it was completed on July 13, 2011. Several teams were impacted by the closed stadium and had to rush to find accommodations for the upcoming seasons, which, like I said, if you'd replace the roof on your schedule, then maybe you wouldn't have had to rush to find other accommodations. I'm just saying, Minneapolis. The Major League Baseball season is 162 games long. Like, this isn't one or two things you got to reschedule. You're rescheduling 81 games. The other thing that's weird is they closed it in 2013. So they closed the stadium two years after replacing the roof, which I don't fully understand. Why not just close it then? So there you have it. The Minnesota Metrodome, a combination of a pressurized structure and a fabric roof requires a lot of maintenance to keep the roof up there doing doing roof things. Otherwise, it collapses like it did in Minneapolis. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes.
I also recently sent out a link to an RSS feed that's direct from our Patreon page. So if you sign up for that, you should be able to get these bonus episodes in your regular feed, which is pretty exciting. If you have trouble with that, just message us in the Patreon app and I will help you sort that out. Bye everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>